Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Shares for beginners. And from my own experience, from the evidence of researching thousands of companies from an ESG perspective, I have come to the conclusion that you cannot really have a company that has strong environmental and social policies without strong governance. Because it points towards the ethical mindset of the leaders of the business. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What's volatility and how do fund managers navigate the dangerous shoals of market downturns? I'm joined today by Craig Mercer from Dalton Investments. Hello, Craig. Hi, Phil. Thanks for inviting me along. Thank you. And I, usually fund managers are wearing much more like a suit than, than your <laughs> outfit today. <laughs> yeah, COVID has long since ditched the suit. You know, I spend most of my time working on my own. Uncomfortable. <laughs> <know>, exactly. <laughs> so Craig Mercer is the Chief Research Officer and Head of ESG at Dalton Investments Australia. Dalton Investments LLC is a value-based investment management firm with expertise in Asia, emerging markets and global equities. But I just wanted to start off by talking about Johnny Tomahawk. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I've got it here. <laughs> but obviously, those that can't see, he's holding up a book. So <laughs> that's my pen name and also my gaming handle, if you are into that sort of thing. It's a book I wrote about 10 years ago now. And it was, you know, in some respects, as we were just saying before we came on air, quite similar to what Shares for Beginners is about. I tried to distill in a very short, easy to read format some basic rules for investing. But a lot of. <sighs> I guess financial texts can be quite boring. And so I try to use pop culture and humor to try and sort of elucidate, you know, illuminate some of the problems that many sort of novices face when they invest. Mm. It's a very short book. It's about 80 so pages long. Um, It's called Bring Me the Horizon. It's still available on Amazon. And effectively, it's meant to be a short read, but to give you some really sort of, you know, maybe humorous stories from my own experience and try and then bring that into the world of sort of the the jargon and all of the problems that come with, you know, investing. Yep. And so as a metal guy, I noticed <laughs> yeah. you had a rebirth into hip hop <laughs> yeah. in the late nineties, early two thousands. That's and right. Some, some advice from the notorious big, or do you say B-I-G? B-I-G. Yeah. B-I-G. The notorious B-I-G. Yeah. The notorious B-I-G. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No. So, you know, one of his songs is called the 10 crack commandments, but basically he talks about his own experience dealing drugs before he became a hip hop star and some of the lessons that he learned. And actually, the Ten Commandments are really quite informative about how to run a business and how to invest and how to trust your client, you know, maybe not using leverage or borrowing money. So there's lots of things like that, you know, throughout the book that are things that, you know, you might not expect to sort of associate with investing, like, you know, the Ninja Turtles, for example, and Astro Boy, which is a very personal story about how much money I lost following a a thematic or a an idea as opposed to a real business, if you like. So was that um, idea, was that in your personal account? or Yeah, yeah. PA. PA. I mean, there were a number of fund managers that I worked with around that time that were invested in in their own investment portfolios and have subsequently shut down. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, the lesson learned there was like, you know, why not to follow something purely based on, you know, like a dream or an idea 
but also the management team of this particular company that made Astro Boy. Their original business was making Christmas trees. So what did they know about making movies? And so there's some lessons to be learned there as well about mm. how management teams, I guess, can make really severe mistakes. Yeah. So I'll date stamp this because we're recording on the 10th of May, 2022, and we're going to into a period, and I'm going to make the little <laughs> quotes, volatility. What's your interpretation of volatility? Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, uh, you know, thinking back, I hadn't read my book for quite a while because it's been such a long time since I wrote it, but I wrote about volatility quite a lot in the book. And I'm very much of the Benjamin Graham school of thinking that, you know, in the short run, the market is a voting machine. By that, what he means is, is that at any point in time, the volatility in a market is what people think about the short-term sort of thoughts about where the market direction is going. He went on to say, of course, that in the long run, it's a weighing machine, which ultimately business performance and the quality of a company will shine through over the long run. So we're going through this sort of period of time where markets are volatile, purely because people don't really know what's going on in the world. You know, there's all sorts of sort of, you know, exogenous and you know endogenous threats you know around and people don't really know what to make of it and the heads or tails of it so ultimately volatility is not really risk warren buffett has often said things like if the market was to shut for 10 years you know would you be happy owning what you own and then in 10 years you know would you get your money back so from my perspective you know volatility is not risk risk is losing your money or the permanent impairment of capital, as some like to say. Mm. So in many respects, we're going through this period of heightened volatility because people's emotions are quite high. You know, the, the fear and greed sort of premise of the markets is quite extreme at this point in time. But that creates opportunity if you're thinking about the long run. So good businesses with strong business performance over long periods of time should win through this. So there's actually opportunities, if you like. So from our perspective, as a long-term value-oriented firm at Dalton, we're really thinking about where are the great opportunities and where they lie. Mm. And does this volatility create opportunity as opposed to sell everything, you know, like everyone else seems to be doing? So how does this selling operate? I've read a lot of Twitter. And <laughs> okay. Everyone's got a <laughs> It's theory. not a good place to start. <laughs> no, no, no. There's some, some good people to follow. But the, the, everyone has a different idea about where this volatility comes from. So there's people who need to redeem money. And so they take their money out of funds and ETFs, and yep. then that affects the buying and selling of those particular companies, and it becomes a feedback loop. Yep. Would that be how you would characterise the process of what's going on at the moment? Well, well, look, there's a number of things. You know, obviously, we're in an environment where cost of living is clearly rising. You know, inflationary pressures are, are genuinely real. When you've got 8% inflation in the US and no wage inflation or not to the same extent, you know, people's general cost of living are going up. So they need money to fund, you know, their lives. And interest rates, on the other hand, are also going up. So they also need money to maybe fund servicing a mortgage or things like that. So this, yes, there is some selling in the market because of those kinds of reasons. But a lot of the participants in the market are not investing with a very long-term investment horizon. They're investing in a very short-term, I want to make money quick, What's the next hot thing? You know, the Reddit sort of threads that we saw, you know, the hysteria around certain companies. And they're just thinking, oh, the markets are going down. Let me just sell because they're not really thinking about what they're investing in. They're thinking about the momentum side of investing. And this has been pervasive for probably the past decade. The growth of ETFs has been quite staggering, to be honest, you know, to trillions of dollars from not very much. 
And I would recommend people actually read that book, Trillions, which is a wonderful examination of how ETFs have grown. It's really insightful. But with that and the ease of accessibility has come a very quick and easy way for people to deploy money that they ordinarily wouldn't have done without doing much research, I might add. <laughs> Robin Wigglesworth, I think, is the name of the, the author, but it's a recently published book. It looks at the whole history of ETFs mm. and how they started from Jack Bogle, Wellington. I didn't realize that Jack Bogle was actually the founder of Wellington, which is an active fund management firm, and was cast out because he wanted to grow the yep. indexation business. And then his, his actual logo, the Vanguard, the, the boat is Wellington's boat. That's right. And it was yeah. like a big, you know, sort of mm. up yours to the Wellington people. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a really fascinating character. Unfortunately, he I never is. got a chance to meet him. Yeah, I've actually spoken to a couple of people who've met him. Yeah. And apparently he was very generous. And these are people who were employed by Vanguard. And he would eat every day in the staff cafeteria and people were welcome to come up and talk to him. And yeah, one of the guests I had... Jack Bogle found out that he had a specialty in a particular part of finance that um, Jack wasn't aware of. And after meeting him in the, the cafeteria, actually contacted him by email and wanted to learn from this new employee. So that's something that's really important, I think, in investing as well, is just to always keep learning. Yeah, absolutely. Like you have to be very open-minded. And this is, again, one of the things that I actually wrote about in Bring Me the Horizon was that there is a need to constantly learn from people that you probably wouldn't ordinarily think are going to teach you something. Mm. One of the big problems that we have in investing is people get sort of really focused into sort of a myopic way of thinking and they don't challenge their criteria. And this is all behavioral sort of economics, looking for confirmation, you know, that confirmation bias is really pervasive in investing. You know, people don't look for the competing argument that might, you know, balance out their own viewpoint. They only seek out the information that reinforces their viewpoint. Mm. And so reading books about parts of the market or areas of investing that might not be your wheelhouse or areas that you don't understand should be something that you do as a matter of discipline, as opposed to something that you just, you know, occasionally do. It should be really entrenched into, into sort of your modus operandi, if that makes sense. And presumably you've got an investment team that are challenging each other <laughs> Yes, <laughs> every day. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very different viewpoints. You know, we're an Asian-focused investment firm. So, you know, as you can imagine, we have a lot of different cultures in our business. You know, myself and, and the CIO are the only two sort of white guys, if you like, on the team. You know, we have South Americans, we have Indians, we have Japanese, Koreans, Taiwanese, Chinese, Bangladeshis. So we have people from such a wide sort of mishmash of global sort of culture and economies. And as you can imagine, someone, say, from Taiwan and someone from mainland China have a very opposing viewpoint about the role China plays in the global economy. And so that can lead to quite heated discussion and debate because from the perspective of someone that comes from, you know, Taipei is very different to the perspective of someone that comes from Beijing because of the news that they consume and, and the way they fed information. Yep. So that creates, you know, what I call a constructive tensions it informs the debate and it gives us a more open mind, which is what you want. You want a creative tension, if you like. So what are the conversations like at the moment? Look, I'd say animated is probably a good way to describe it. There's so many different viewpoints. The biggest areas of discussion that we've been having internally have been around China in particular. With the, the Russia-Ukraine invasion, 
there's a lot of thought process. You know, there has been a lot of discussion internally about what will you know Xi Jinping do with Taiwan. You know, given what we've seen happening in Hong Kong, and and now with Hong Kong appointing a new leader that is effectively an extension of Beijing, you know, what does that mean for Taiwan, and what does that mean then in turn for the global semiconductor industry, for example? You know, Taiwan is really integral to the global semiconductor industry. If there was a more you know sort of strategic move by the Chinese government into Taiwan, that would be catastrophic for the global economy. There's some of us that probably think that's a higher probability than others. But you can see the way in which the geopolitics around the world are sort of shifting. You know, a lot of Taiwanese companies, by way of example, have started to invest heavily in U.S.-based manufacturing facilities. A lot of companies that were historically doing business in China, you know, with outsourced manufacturing, for example, have started to decouple their supply chains and move back to Japan or back to Taiwan or to other parts of the Asian region or indeed offshore. Um, you know, India, for example, has been a beneficiary of that. You know, Apple has started to build facilities to manufacture phones in India. Now, that's all as a consequence of, you know, the geopolitical framework. Now, there's probably the very pro-China bulls that will think, well, that's it's just a short-term phenomenon. We don't think it's really going to change that much. And then there's the the other side of the coin, which is this is something that's going to persist and will continue to sort of decouple. And we're sort of probably more in the latter part of that conversation. And it's also, you know, as head of ESG, one of the things that I think about a lot is, is with the whole Russia situation, you know, basically immediately cast out as a non-investable market, given what they're doing in Ukraine. And, and that sort of begs the question, well, how does China fit into that equation? If they're sort of supporting the Russian regime, which they sort of, you know, not necessarily saying they are, but they are through the actions they're taking. And what's going on with the Uyghur community you know, should an ESG-minded investor be casting the same sort of die on China? And that's a really deep philosophical question in my mind. You know, Russia is not integral to the global economy in, yes, it produces oil, yes, it produces gas, but those are almost replaceable because, you know, they're 8 or 10% of the global sort of supply. And they're commodities. They're yeah. commodities that can be produced somewhere else. China is, you know, fundamentally integrated into the, the global economy through manufacturing. I mean, they make everything. So if that's cut off tomorrow, that would have material ramifications for so many different kinds of industries and, you know, sectors that you wouldn't even imagine, you wouldn't even think about, I guess. And ESG comes into it as well in terms of thinking about China. There's a manufacturing base. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, one of the things that was really fascinating is in the last few years, the Chinese government has sort of mandated that companies have what they call a CCP committee. So, you know, like in corporate governance terms, you know, say in somewhere like Australia, you have an audit committee and you have a remuneration committee. Well, you know, companies have those things in China, but they also now have a CCP committee. The Chinese Communist Party. Exactly, right? So, you know, the conduit between company operation and the conduit to the government, right? So, that in itself to Western-minded investment firm or investor... In terms of the governance side of ...should things. be a concern, yep. right? Because the Chinese Communist Party is not aligned to your, you know, motives or your what you want from a successful sort of investment from a capitalistic standpoint. Hmm. Um, they have very different objectives. You know, and that's one of the reasons why for many, many years almost since we started investing in Asia, we've never wanted to invest in state control companies because fundamentally misaligned to you as a minority shareholder. You know, the state of China's goals are completely different to 
what you want as uh, a shareholder. As a shareholder. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that's come up recently in terms of the ESG is that, and this is from an article I just read from First Links, and it's about whether armaments manufacturers <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> are now ESG compliant because they're actually doing good in Ukraine. So you asked, you know, you asked about, you know, what are we talking about? You know, what's the discussion? This has actually been a very, you know, sort of dynamic conversation internally is the, the two things that have come up in conversation is one is, you know, it's all well and good, but should you be allowed as an ESG investor to invest in a weapons manufacturer that's manufacturing weapons for the right people, right? Mm. <laughs> like, uh, now, of course, the right people is a highly interpretive statement, but that, that's a, almost in some respects a very viable question. The second part of the conversation has been around nuclear energy. Clearly, when Fukushima, the earthquake and the tsunami, you know, destroyed the Fukushima power plant, the global sentiment towards nuclear power completely cratered. And, you know, economies and governments all over the world start shutting down nuclear power. Um, you know, Germany, case in point. Now, the debate here is, is, well, the consequence of doing that is that they become ultra reliant on Russian gas and oil for their own power. Needs. So there's a geopolitical implication as well as a carbon production implication. And so the question then becomes, you know, will we start to see nuclear power becoming back on the agenda? And actually, fascinatingly enough, Kishida, the president of Japan, was just in, I think, in Europe, and he was talking to, you know, a group of investors, and he basically said with quite clear language that they're going to start turning on nuclear power again, because that will circumvent the demand that they need for foreign oil and foreign gas to power their own country. At the same time, there's been some enormous innovations on that side of the fence in terms of how, you know, the big issue with nuclear power clearly is what do you do with waste? And I think in Finland, there's been some really crazy innovations that allow companies to dispose of nuclear waste in a more sustainable sort of fashion, if you like, without causing harm to the, the environment. Still in the early phases of its sort of, you know, evolution. But nonetheless, you know, these kinds of things that we're seeing in Russia and the Ukraine really start to present these conversations as being, well, actually, are we getting this all wrong? You know, you can't cut off oil and gas from the global economy overnight. There has to be a long-term sustainable transition. But what are the long-term solutions? And I don't think people have quite figured that out yet. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So you're mentioning about Chinese companies having a CCP representative Board, well, they have to form level? a corporate committee that, yeah. that liaises with the government. Does that occur with Chinese companies that are listed on the NASDAQ? So that's a very fascinating conversation. So, I mean, we know Alibaba, for example. Yeah, Tencent has done this. But the reality is, is those companies, and this again has been a hot topic of conversation, is most of those US listed Chinese companies will have to delist at some point. You know, the, the US authorities are quite... They're pushing through the legislation, and a lot of it has been pushed through already. They've been either relisting back in, say, Hong Kong, or you know, bringing business back onshore, or they've just gone private. And that whole banning of the the ADRs, you know, American depository receipts, really stems from a corporate governance concern, which is all of those listed entities in the U.S. are what they call variable interest entities, 
which effectively means that they are a Cayman or a British Virgin Islands a domiciled company that has entered into a contractual arrangement with the onshore company in China. And there's almost no transparency between what those contracts actually you know, intimate. So the auditors can't get clean access to the onshore you know, accounts in China. They're not able to inspect the companies as they would say in the US. And that's really what's led to this was we have no transparency. There was a wonderful example of Alibaba, which did this deal where they spun out Ant Financial, Ant Financial being the IPO that was you know, canned by the Chinese authorities because of control issues. But Ant Financial was spun out of Alibaba at a, at a price that was absolutely ludicrous. And I can't remember the number exactly, but it woefully undervalued the business. But who was the controlling shareholder of Ant Financial? Well, it was Jack Ma. So he was essentially selling the company to himself at a price that was unreasonable. And, I, and I'm talking, it was probably sub $10 billion at, at the time. And then they were going to do an IPO that would have valued the business at $120 billion or whatever it was. Which, you know, that screams of bad corporate governance, that's right? A, that's a related party transaction? That's correct, yeah, right? Yeah. So... And Financial was controlled by Alibaba. They were the major shareholder, and it was effectively spun out at a price. And because they control the voting rights of Alibaba, they could do it without other shareholders you know, approving it. Now, and again, this is one of the major drawbacks of a lot of technology companies, um, not just Chinese ones. You know, like WeWork was a great example of this. You know, Facebook, where you have founder controlling shareholders that might own, say, 9% of the equity or 10% of the equity, which is not an immaterial amount of equity. But they structure the equity in such a way that that 10% carries a much more substantive voting you know, power. Mm. So, so they have class A shares, which is what the general public owns, and that's one share, one vote, which is pretty normal practice. But then class B shares might be one share, 10 votes. And the class B shares is where obviously all the, the controlling shareholders sit, and they own less than the, you know, the controlling amount of the total equity of the company, but they control the company. So Alibaba was that kind of example. And almost every single technology company that I can think of in the US has that same kind of structure. So you have a, a controlling shareholder that's not the controlling owner, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm. That's that's it. really interesting because ESG, most people think about ESG and wanting to have a carbon-free future. <laughs> but the G part of it is governance. And Absolutely. this is so important as well. And you're just highlighting so many of these governance issues in many companies. Absolutely. And it's very hard to think, and from my own experience, from the evidence of researching thousands of companies from an ESG perspective, I have come to the conclusion that you cannot really have a company that has strong environmental and social policies without strong governance. Because it points towards the ethical mindset of the leaders of the business if they structure the governance in such a way that is fundamentally misaligning you as a minority shareholder, you know, how can you really trust what they say they're doing on the ENES is, is really correct, right? But you also have no power to enforce the change. So, you know, one share, one vote should be what everyone does. But the private equity firms around the world have, you know, come to deals to take these companies public from being private where they've given unfavorable terms, I guess, or favorable to them, to the owners of those businesses when they go public, so that they can retain control, behave like a private enterprise, 
but spend the public's money, <laughs> which is, you know, the, a great transition of wealth, I should say. <laughs> In your opinion, is there a company that's getting it right? Let's be optimistic. You know, oh, there are many companies that are doing this right. I mean, you know, speaking of, of, you know, our area of expertise, I mean, a company like Sony, for example, you know, Sony is a world-class company. It makes products that, you know, almost everyone will have a Sony product probably in their household. But they've really got the E, the S, and to some extent, the G correct. Now, the G comes with the caveat that it's Japan. So the mindset of governance in Japan is quite different to maybe what the mindset of good governance might be, say, in the United Kingdom. But in the context of a Japanese corporate, it's got really strong governance sort of credentials. Now, could they could probably return more money to shareholders? They could probably be a bit wiser with their capital discipline. But from an ESG standpoint, they've got a lot of it right. Mm. And uh, looking at Asia, Dalton is coming to the view that Asia is becoming one region and should be treated as one region. Can you explain that? Are we talking about yeah. South Asia and Southeast Asia? And It's probably slightly incorrect to say it's becoming one singular market. What we think is, is you cannot analyse Asia or invest in Asia without looking at the whole region. So that's a subtle difference. And by that, what I mean is, is you cannot form an opinion on a Japanese technology company or hardware manufacturer, say in the semiconductor industry, if you're not really focusing on what's going on in Taiwan and in Korea, because they are the major competing forces. So if you are a Japanese investor, you really have to be thinking about Asia as a whole. Actually, what we probably think is this decoupling sort of story that I sort of was mentioning is actually Asia is becoming more decentralized. So you know, you're moving away from China as the dominant sort of trading block, if you like, and you're getting more companies spreading out their sort of manufacturing or diversifying it across the region so that they have less disruption, if you like, to supply chains. And that's come as a consequence of probably two major things. You know, the Trump administration in the first instance, what they did was, you know, they introduced obviously tariffs against China, which forced a lot of companies to think, well, if we're making a product that has got a tariff on it in China, if we move our manufacturing from China to, say, Cambodia or to you know, Myanmar or to Vietnam and we don't get that tariff, then let's do that because we can maintain margins. And a lot of companies did that fairly quickly or have been doing that for a long period of time. You know, When COVID started, that accelerated that process because it became even more abundantly clear that the reliance on China for manufacturing was crippling a lot of companies. And we're even seeing it now, you know, with China lockdowns and China's sort of zero COVID approach, you know, being still very prevalent right now, companies are experiencing supply chain disruptions. And it's a terrible thing to be reliant, so reliant on one country. That's the thing. Their, their so, policy. so a market like Japan, for example, Japan actually introduced tax incentives to a lot of its companies to bring back manufacturing onshore. Now, clearly, the issue that is very pervasive in Japan is labor shortages. It's a very old country. They don't have the young, dynamic workforce that really, you know, you need to produce goods, you know, in a factory. And no immigration either. Well, so, so exactly, right? So you have this weird, you know, sort of situation where Japan has the ability to bring some of these things onshore. And there are companies, bizarrely, that specialize in bringing labor into the country, but also automation and you know, robotics and all those kinds of things where Japan leads the world, allow them to maybe do things with less physical people. 
and you know come back to the point I made earlier this is one of the reasons why India is going to be a big you know in our minds winner of all of this they have a very young and dynamic population and a lot of companies are like well India has you know a slightly more transparent rule of law English based law, legal system it's a democracy you know the world's largest democracy highly educated workforce. highly educated English speaking to a large extent so you know there's a lot of things that make it almost a no brainer but also, if you're thinking about long-term thematic trends, where is the biggest population in the world in the next two decades? It's in India. You know, it's got a huge amount of its population under the age of 30 and quickly becoming, you know, wealthier, which is a large consumption market in itself. And we saw that in China. And so we're going to see sort of, you know, somewhat of a repeat of that whole big economic transformation as more Indians join the workforce, as more Indians earn more money. They not only consume themselves, but at the moment, it's still an economic trade-off for, I say, a U.S. manufacturer. You're getting much cheaper labor in India than you are, say, in the U.S. But as that changes, you know, obviously, then they'll be somewhere else where people will ultimately go. And that might well be somewhere in Africa, for example, which is probably the next 50 years. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Dalton engages with portfolio companies, and you encourage them to drive value for shareholders by suggesting opportunistic buybacks of companies' stock. Tell yeah. us about that process. Do, I mean, do you have that much kind of sway with the, the management of some of these portfolio companies? The simple answer to that question is, is both yes and no. So obviously in a small company... You can that, ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you can ask any management company to yeah. do it, right? Whether or not they'll be inclined to listen to you is something entirely different. But in a company, say, with a, you know, a market capitalization of, say, 200 million US dollars, you know, we can own 10, 15% of those companies. And in that circumstance, you have much more sway because you're oftentimes the second largest shareholder maybe to the founder that created the company. So, yes, you can have some sway. But as I said, like different kinds of management teams have very different responses to you know, any form of sort of active engagement. For the most part, in a market like Japan, where we're probably the most pronounced at this, the knee-jerk reaction is, is, you know, no, we don't want to talk to you. You're a foreigner. You know, like, what do you know? Now, the most powerful thing that's happened in Japan in the last, sort of, say, 10 years is under the Abe government, I think, when he came into power in 2012, he introduced a whole range of reforms. You know, Japan has been notorious for poor management of balance sheets, basically, you know, hoarding cash on balance sheet, which comes from, you know, the Asian crisis or the Tokyo bubble popping in 87, you know, this fear that, you know, they always need to be prepared for the worst case environment, which is, you know, as we go through this in market correction now, makes these companies arguably a lot more competitive. But because they've done this so aggressively for so long, you know, you have quite literally hundreds of companies that trade at the market value of their share price is less than the cash that they hold in the bank. Now, that is not a great use of, you know, your capital on your and, balance sheet. And this, this comes to the question of capital and how a company should use its capital. Absolutely. And buyback yeah. is one of the ways that they can deploy Absolutely. that Absolutely. So they could increase dividends, which is another thing that we're very proactive in, in encouraging, you know, returning capital to shareholders in some form. You know, buying back shares ultimately means that they return cash to you as an investor. They contract the amount of shares that they have in issuance, which means you get more earnings per share. Because bear in mind, a lot of these companies are actually really good businesses that are generating, you know, sound cash flow. They have growing, you know, operating margins. They have growing businesses. And so the cash just continues to grow because they don't really do anything with it. So they should either 
buy themselves out and take themselves private because they shouldn't really be necessarily public companies, or they should return that cash to shareholders in some way that is accretive to all shareholders. Now, the bizarre thing that we've come up against in Japan is even though the owner might be the biggest shareholder, they are ultimately the biggest net beneficiary themselves of doing this kind of transaction, but they're reluctant to do it, which to us doesn't make any sense. So being more gentle, a bit sort of engaging with companies over very long periods of time, understanding that we're a long-term shareholder in a business, we're not here just to you know, strip money out of the business and then walk off. All those kinds of things are really important in a market like Japan. So we've had some successes in doing this. I mean, if we look at our own portfolios, we've had more buybacks and more dividend increases in the last 18 months than we've ever had historically. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that the government is pushing reform, you know, more capital efficiency, enforcing companies to enhance their return on equity, which is forcing management teams to think, oh, we have to do something. Otherwise, we're going to fall foul to the government. They're not necessarily worried about you as the shareholder, but falling foul to the government. And then the Tokyo Stock Exchange itself has introduced a whole sweeping range of regulations that have said, basically, if you don't meet certain standards, you're going to be delisted from the primary stock market in Tokyo, which, if you know anything about Japanese culture, you know, loss of face is an enormously big thing. And so here you've got a situation where the companies don't want to be demoted from these indices, so have to come up with a plan to, you know, increase the value of their own company to keep themselves in those indices. So whether it's buying back stock, selling other assets that they might have that are, you know, underperforming, increasing their dividends, buying themselves out or, you know, doing mergers with others to create a, a more cohesive end product of your end company. Those are all things that are on the table and they're happening at a reasonably fast pace, which is a really exciting time to be involved in the Japanese market. You know, when prices are already cheap, you know, global stock prices are falling. Japan was cheap before they started falling. They've obviously gone down with the rest of the world. The yen is also at like, I think, a 50-year low relative to the US dollar. So if you're a foreigner buying into Japanese securities, not only are you buying cheap stocks, but you're buying them at a very cheap yen. And then this backdrop of all this governance reform and change makes it a really exciting time to be doing this kind of stuff. So Craig, tell us about Dalton and how listeners can find out more about you. Dalton, we're based in, in the US primarily, you know, but we have offices all over Asia and like Tokyo in particular. We have a large team. We have people in India, here in obviously in Australia, myself, people in, in Asia, in, in Hong Kong as well, and, and Santa Monica, which is where our head office is. Daltoninvestments.com is our website if you want to learn more about what we do. Manage about $3 billion in Asian equities, I guess, primarily in Asian equities and Japanese equities. And that's really what we, you know, that's our bread and butter. We've been doing it for the best part of 25 years by this stage. And where can listeners find the book? Are you set on, it's still yeah, available it's still on available Amazon? Yeah, it's still available on Amazon.com or, or Lulu Publishing, which is the publisher of the book. I think you can buy it directly from the publisher's website. But Amazon.com, it's called Bring Me the Horizon. And the author's name is Johnny Tomahawk. And as I said, if you ever happen to be playing Apex Legends or something and you see that, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and metal music? <laughs> Do you play in the metal band as well? Well, yeah, the book was named after a metal band, Bring Me the Horizon, which is, you know, if you're a fan of that kind of music, quite a big band. 
one of their songs was was the inspiration because it was about breaking away from from the crowd, if you like. Yeah, well, I could always imagine you in a black t-shirt down at Utopia Records. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't go there often enough. <laughs> Craig Mercer, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Phil. Pleasure to meet you, and thanks for your time. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.